Section 22 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 The End of Manor Aristocracy. Despite the opposition of Dr. Boughton and other prominent anti renters who had learned to suspect Harris and would never have sponsored the American Jeffreys, both Ira Harris and Amasa J. Parker were elected justices of the Supreme Court in the first judiciary election of New York State, held in June 1847. Harris had found it necessary to plead that it was vitally important to anti-renters to stand by their nominations and not let party bias or any other cause prevent their voting the whole anti-rent ticket, and in the end he had succeeded in swinging the election. By driving the last nail into Deverism, Harris had destroyed the anti-rent party as a unified political force, even though he could not eradicate Thomas Devere's influence toward national reform. Dr. Boughton was still disenfranchised, but he continued his political activities, taking the stump to tell the farmers that their war would never be won until freedom of the public lands had been guaranteed. On November 27, 1847, just as the farmers were about to go into convention, Governor John Young restored full political rights to the anti-rent leaders, for again he needed anti-rent votes. Dr. Boughton was immediately elected a delegate from Rensselaer County, but he walked out of the convention when he found that by foul play and the most damnable hypocrisy and pipe-laying, Harris's friends had wrecked the union of anti-rentism and national reform. Boughton was soon followed by most of the radical anti-renters, leaving in the Harris camp a group of farmers of stubborn will but little effective leadership. At this stage, many of the younger farmers and some of the ablest of the older anti-renters left the manor counties, feeling, like Devere, that the cause had been betrayed by men of narrow vision and selfish interests. Smith A. Boughton was one of the few radical leaders to remain in New York State. Most of them were no longer interested in anti-rentism specifically, but only as part of a larger struggle. As Harris became more occupied with his duties as Supreme Court Justice than with the tenants' cause, the freeholder found new independence— its editor demanded an immediate end to land speculation, which made the rich richer and the poor poorer. From local issues, the paper jumped into national politics and spoke strongly against slavery. Let us thwart the South in their darling and damnable scheme. Let us humble the proud spirit of this intolerant and imperious slaveocracy. Let us, as we love liberty and hate slavery, proclaim every northern man who shall directly or indirectly promote the extension of slavery, the betrayer of his constituents and a traitor to his country and to freedom. Radical farm leaders talked equal rights and drew up a new manifesto setting forth broad objectives, winnowed from many reform philosophies. We believe that all men are equal, sovereign, and independent— we believe that every man has a right to live, and consequently a right to use and enjoy the means to produce that result. We are in favor of an inalienable homestead and the freedom of the public lands to actual settlers in limited quantities. 
we believe that all power reposes in and emanates from the people, not the few, but all. We denounce legal and self-constituted monopolies as destructive of natural rights and at war with the true principles of social happiness. We believe it is the first duty of the people and their agencies in authority to provide for the education of all, their moral and social improvement, their happiness and prosperity, not a few or a particular class, but the mass, without let or hindrance. In religion, we would be silent, enjoying our own, and permitting others to do so undisturbed. In Delhi, from the very bench where Judge Parker had demanded the heads of anti-renters, Dr. Boughton called for a combination which should be as impregnable as the rocks of Gibraltar, and which would defy the clandestine attacks of the enemies of the working class. When he finished, Edward O'Connor, now married to his Janet, rose from his seat, and from the same spot where his death sentence had been pronounced, pledged Delaware County farmers to boldly and fearlessly advocate the freedom of the public lands. The meeting further agreed that the Democratic and Whig parties had failed to meet the expectations of the people, and now the people were ready to form a political combination that would excel the old parties in numerical strength. Efforts to crush the last vestiges of the anti-rent party before it merged with the growing national free soil movement finally trapped the politicians. The Whigs intended to deny John Young the renomination because of his party irregularity and his anti-rent connections. Knowing this, the governor saw that his best hope of heading off political annihilation was to build a solid progressive front. He discarded his opposition to a test of title, and suddenly appeared before the 1848 legislature to ask authority for the Attorney General to begin legal action to recover the manors for the state, unless the landlords could prove ownership. While the bill was pending, the landlords first tried ordinary lobbying methods, then reverted to old and tested tactics. Rent-collecting agents scurried over the hills, creating riot and rebellion, and then filled the press with accounts of new anti-rent outrages. Tenant violence was resumed, deputy sheriffs were shot at, tarred and feathered, and a deputy was booted out of a church on the Helderbergs when he interrupted a religious service to serve writs under orders from Stephen Van Rensselaer. George Clark, a newcomer among the landlords who had succeeded to large tracts in Delaware, Schoharie, Herkimer, Montgomery, and Otsego counties, where he was a neighbor and good friend of James Fenimore Cooper, stated that he was willing to spend $25,000 to defeat the bill. He paid men $2 a day to solicit petitions against it. A man calls at a groggery, hands the barkeeper a dollar, tells him to treat the company all around, and then asks the boys to sign, reported the freeholder. In spite of the flurry of opposition, however, John Young again appeared to have executed a masterful coup. Politicians anxious to destroy him and anti-rentism were backed to the wall. If they refused to grant the test of title, they would provide the anti-rent leaders with the one issue which would reunite the organization— Believing the test of title was far less dangerous than the re-election of Young and a resurgent anti-rent party, they passed the bill with amazing speed, 
by a vote of more than two to one, and no one was more surprised than the anti-renters themselves. Most of the landlords sent forth doves of peace, offering to sell their equity in the leases at ridiculously low prices, but there was no great rush to buy. Several actions were brought by the state, and shortly after the passage of the bill, in response to pressure from the farmers, Governor Young advocated the disposal of public lands in limited quantities to actual settlers. In a report which might well have been written by Devere or Evans, Dr. Jonathan Alaban, the Delaware County anti-renter, induced a New York State Legislative Committee to recommend the limitation of land holdings, homestead exemption from debt, and freedom of the public lands. In August of that year, reformers, abolitionists, and dissident Democrats and Whigs gathered in Buffalo to unite in a national free soil party behind the candidacy of Martin Van Buren. The radical elements wrote the party platform. Van Buren was to swing the barn burners into line. Although Van Buren was cautious in his commitments, he ran on a platform calling for free land grants to settlers. But owing to his fundamental lack of conviction on the issue, the free soil ticket was foredoomed to defeat, and Thomas DeVere accused those impostors at Buffalo of stealing the very name that his party had used in 1846 in opposing Wright and Young. Knowing that they could not lose with the Democrats' split, the Whigs hastened to proclaim the time propitious to deal with the foul spirit of anti-rentism. John Young was dropped, and reaction climbed swiftly back into the saddle of Whiggery. Hamilton Fish was put up for governor, and a Whig spokesman predicted, This fall's election will annihilate the anti-rent party. We shall have no more trouble from them. John Slingerland, too, paid dearly for supporting anti-rentism and free farms. The Whigs discarded him, and he suffered a political eclipse for some years. On the advice of Samuel J. Tilden, the tenants brought an independent suit to test the legality of the quarter-sale reservation in the leases, and it reached the Supreme Court. In 1850, Justice Amasa J. Parker held the quarter-sales unconstitutional, on the heels of that decision, Justice Ira Harris ruled the Van Rensselaer title invalid, with the full session of the Supreme Court concurring. Manor aristocracy was tottering. The landlords proposed, without success, that the state appropriate $250,000 a year for two years to pay them for their rights in the leases. In 1852, they tried to appeal from Judge Parker's decision, but the Court of Appeals upheld it in a unanimous opinion written by Justice Charles Ruggles, who, like Parker, had long been a bitter critic of anti-rentism. Judge Ruggles's opinion found the quarter sales still legal in leases drawn up before the Revolution, but illegal in any lease after 1787, the year when the state had outlawed restraints on the transfer of title. In the belief of many, this decision established the tenants as the owners of their land, for if the quarter sale was invalid, then the transfer of a lease was legally a sale, and subsequent rents were invalid. William P. Van Rensselaer's counsel for the East Manor admitted that the contest was ended. 
The anti-renters are proved to have been right in their hostility to the system. I do not regret their success, for it is, after all, another step in human progress. Josiah Sutherland, long a lawyer for the Livingstons, considered the decision a legitimate close to the anti-rent controversy. But the last bolts of the landlords had not been shot. There were still legal loopholes. A Court of Appeals decision reversed the Harris invalidation of the Van Rensselaer title, pointing to a landlord-sponsored statute of 1830, which specified that land titles had to be questioned within 40 years. The court also ruled that, conceived in fraud or not, the ownership of the feudal estates was safe from question, so long as that 1830 statute remained in effect. This decision threw the whole issue of title into the field of controversy again. In the minds of many lawyers, however, it did not help the landlord's position, because the decision of 1852 confirming the tenants as the owners of the soil stood unchallenged. Stephen Van Rensselaer IV was ready to surrender. When he offered the West Manor to speculators, many of the leases were bought by Walter Church, son of a wealthy landowner of western New York, who was related to the Schuylers. Church paid an estimated $210,000, gambling on a substantial profit before the grave of feudalism was finally dug. At 40, hard, tall, with the dark skin and the rugged features of an Indian, Church began to move in the best political circles. As the new owner of a great estate, he was carefully devising means of turning his speculative investment to vast profits, on the assumption that legislators, judges, and even governors could be bought. Church's handbills flooded the West Manor, where he owned many leases, and the East Manor, where he acted as agent, declaring that all who did not arrange to settle back rents and all who contested payment would be charged a sum which at 6% interest would produce the rent, making a difference of one-fourth in the cost of a release. The handbill informed the tenants that he was going to sue immediately and indiscriminately for all rents in arrears, having waited until every question of title raised by honest doubts or dishonest demagogues had been settled. Now decide whether you will settle your rents without cost, or purchase your releases at an honest rate, or be fooled by politicians, pay heavy bills of cost, and 25% additional for your soil. Many farmers compromised, discouraged by the long and confusing struggle, but some hard-willed men who had talked over their dinner tables with Thomas Devere ten years earlier would never be browbeaten into submission. After Lawrence Van Dusen's death in 1852, the mantle of leadership of the Helderberg farmers fell on Peter Ball of Bern, a small man, quick of action and speech, who wore his snow-white hair in long flowing locks. Ball was stubbornly determined to see justice done, even if he lost the harvest of his life's toil, and many a farmer was seared by his contempt for anyone who let himself be intimidated. He flatly refused to pay rent, informing Church that under the decision of 1852, Stephen Van Rensselaer IV had sold him the land, not leased it. I have no obligation to pay rent, he insisted. I am not a tenant. Church brought court action against him, 
and the weeks preceding election found his agents working feverishly with well-lined pockets for Judge So-and-So. I don't care who else is elected, Church said. In the meantime, his home in Albany became the meeting place of judges and politicians. He spent lavishly, and his efforts were well rewarded in 1858, when the Supreme Court, including Justice Ira Harris, ruled against Peter Ball, and the decision was sustained by the Court of Appeals. Both courts reaffirmed the 1852 decision, which outlawed the quarter sales, reiterating that the land was not leased but sold, and that Ball was not a tenant. However, they argued, in 1805 the legislature had realized the imposition of rents as a condition in a contract of sale. The rents were therefore legal. This reasoning, said Andrew Colvin, a tenant lawyer, shocked the public conscience. But if the tenants were bewildered and the public shocked, Walter Church was neither. Evidence adduced at a later investigation indicated that he knew what the decision was going to be, and on the strength of advance information he had bought the East Manor leases from William Van Rensselaer to add to his previous holdings. The highest price paid, Alexander Johnson revealed in a pamphlet, had not exceeded 25 cents on the dollar, and the lowest had been down to five. Our courts, he went on, have been not merely ignorant, inconsistent, they have been guilty of injustice and judicial robbery. He pointed out that in 1850, Ira Harris had written an opinion denying that rent could be due without privity of contract or estate, but after resuming amicable relations with Van Rensselaer, he decided that a rent might hang upon a single vendition. Johnson had had his own day at playing politics with anti-rentism between 1845 and 1848 when he was editing the Freeholder as Harris's agent, but now as he turned on his old political ally, he was not alone. His position on the Supreme Court decision was supported by many able lawyers in books, pamphlets, and newspaper articles, some newspapers charged that there had been political and financial manipulation of the decision. The tenants might have expected such a decision from some of the Supreme Court justices. One was notoriously a friend of speculators and landlords, elected by know-nothing effervescence. But Ira Harris's stand needed some explanation. A likely clue was disclosed by Alexander Johnson, not long after the decision, Justice Harris sailed to Europe on the same boat with Stephen Van Rensselaer. Perhaps it was also significant that Harris never returned to the bench, but after a year abroad turned to national politics. The decisions of the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, however arrived at, proved of little help to Walter Church. The farmers still refused to pay and vigorously petitioned the legislature to repeal the 1805 Act, legalizing rents as a condition in a contract of sale. Church, pressed for money and aiming at political results, took on three partners, Peter Cagger, James Kidd, and Dean Richmond. Richmond was chairman and Cagger was secretary of the New York State Democratic Committee. In 1845, Cagger had been one of the political strategists who, with John Van Buren and Michael Hoffman, had helped map Wright's suicidal program against anti-rentism. 
Alexander Johnson charged that all three belonged to a class of men whose business it was to hang around the Capitol and manipulate legislators. They bought under belief that courts and judges can be influenced by the arts and appliances that influence legislators. We do know that the sale of the Van Rensselaers has brought around our courts and in close companionship with our judges men who have boasted of owning senators and buying legislators. Church's lobbying efforts failed to check the rising sentiment for the repeal of the Act of 1805, however, and finally he reverted to the old method of violence. He tried to get up another anti-rent commotion and panic the public with bold-faced type. Another anti-rent outrage. On February 17, 1860, while the legislature was still discussing the repeal, he rode to the home of Peter Ball at the head of a large posse. The day was cold and blustery, and snow swept across the Helderbergs. Church led the posse into the house and drove Ball and his family out into the storm, a wife, a son, a sick daughter, and an old colored woman known as Sook. The household effects, the winter's supply of fuel, and the cattle feed were thrown into the highway to be sifted and raked by the wind and the snow. Although nearly five hundred farmers were looking on, they uttered no complaint and made no resistance, for they knew that Church wanted a riot so that he could carry a few anti-renters to the Capitol in chains to convince the legislature. The farmers exhibited great forbearance under this great provocation, and when Church left, they quickly set to work to re-establish Ball in his home. In the legislature, John Slingerland, again in politics after a period of oblivion, took the floor and told how Walter Church's demands on Ball had risen from one hundred and fifty to nine hundred dollars. The sum would have been paid, he said, had it been just. On the most inclement day that has been experienced during this past winter, the sheriff and his posse proceeded to the residence of Mr. Ball. Some idea may be formed of the state of the weather and of the propriety and humanity of executing process at such a time when it is stated that the sheriff and some of his party returned with frost-bitten cheeks. The Ball family was left exposed upon the highway to the tender mercies of a driving snowstorm. I ask you, in the name of freedom, in the name of humanity, Will you permit a similar scene to be enacted? The Act of 1805 was promptly repealed, and Church began his legal struggle all over again. Walter Church did not allow the outbreak of the Civil War in the spring of 1861 to turn him aside from the pursuit of profit. He was a leader in the strong Copperhead faction in Albany, which included many prominent Democrats, and since most of the younger farmers and sons of the old anti-renters were away fighting for the Union, his best course was to dispose of anti-rentism before the war ended. In this phase of his efforts, Church relied on his partner, the state Democratic boss Dean Richmond, who had advanced him money and expected to be repaid out of the profits from the manor properties. In 1863, tenant leaders told the farmers that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation liberates you just as certainly from your servitude as it liberated the slaves of the South from theirs. But Judge Henry R. Selden of the Court of Appeals, an old and intimate friend of Richmond, upheld the landlord's right to collect rent. 
he ruled that the Act of 1805 was not relevant, and relied instead on the Tenant One Act of 1846, taxing leaseholds and abolishing distress sales for unpaid rent. Although Stephen IV was no longer legally a landlord, Selden ruled the 1846 Act entitled him to collect rents. As in many cases in our courts between parties similarly situated, he wrote, they have been spoken of and treated as landlords and tenants, and the decisions in the cases can be sustained on no other ground, as they depend entirely upon a statute applicable only to parties holding that relationship. In other words, countered a legal analyst, the parties in the case were not landlord and tenant, and cannot be landlord and tenant, but the court speaks of them and calls them such, and the court of appeals must so speak of them, or it cannot affirm the judgments, and for the purpose of affirming the judgments it does and will call them landlord and tenant. Alexander Johnson wrote, We are free to say that we think judges and courts need watching as closely as legislators. Judges and senators have been bribed for gold. What chance has the poor and isolated farmer in litigation against the combination of speculators who can draw on Dean Richmond for money, and who can employ in their cause the plausible and winning approaches of Kidd, the pertinacious manipulations of Cagger, and the unblushing impudence of Church. Selden's support launched Church on a ruthless military campaign to crush anti-rent opposition. He elected his friend Henry Fitch as sheriff, had Peter Cagger named legal adviser to the sheriff, and secured his control of law enforcement by obtaining for himself the colonelcy of the National Guard. In 1865, without authority from the governor, Colonel Church ordered the troops to the Helderbergs, traveling in a caravan of wagons, some loaded with pork, beef, hams, bread, crackers, cheese to eat, and beers and liquors generally to drink. Peter Ball was again ejected, and his family and furniture piled into the road. This time old Sook, the negro servant, refused to budge, but sat transfixed in a Boston rocker. Four soldiers had to carry her into the road, chair and all. Taking over the house as his headquarters, Church directed raids against other farmers, forcing the tenants to sign and pay at the point of a gun. When the guardsmen were not raiding, they were drinking, carousing, and singing. We hated church like poison, said the wife of an anti-renter. It finally got so he was scared to come up here, because they shot through his plug hat and another time through his buggy seat. Although church was omnipotent in Albany, on the return of the troops, the Albany Express remarked that the people were shocked that the Democratic Party leaders in the state, whatever they might do to the black, would use the militia to make serfs of the white race for the mere love of gain. As the months passed, more and more farmers gave in, but old anti-renters like Peter Ball, William H. Gallup, and Robert Hayes still held grimly to their principles, calling their weaker neighbors copperheads and secessionists from anti-rentism. Friends were pitted against friends. Anti-renters rode in the dark, intimidating their neighbors. Men who paid rent were in constant danger. One night, five barns were burned on property from which Church had ejected the tenants. Many a horse on the road had a clipped stub for a tail, 
as a symbol that its owner was a secessionist. After the war ended, on April 9, 1865, the farmers drifted back home to take up the anti-rent fight where they had left off. But this time, men who had fought side by side in the rebellion were lined up against each other. In July of the next year, Colonel Church led his army again to the Helderbergs. They are all veterans, having seen service during the war, the Albany Evening Journal reported, and understand guerrilla warfare to perfection. The progress of the army up the Helderbergs was marked by demonstrations of bitter feeling, particularly on the part of the women. Pump handles were removed, and the troops were refused drinking water. The men, however, kept comparatively calm, according to the journal, until Church himself arrived, when the sight of this object of their hatred rendered their wrath almost uncontrollable. Between seventy and eighty farmers had assembled at Peter Warner's in the town of Knox, where the first ejectment was to take place. The farmers scattered as the army approached, but Church's skirmishers worked well, and eight prisoners were taken. Shots were fired at the fleeing farmers, and at least one was wounded. Peter Warner and his family maintained the most stoical indifference in the face of the disturbance, even when Colonel Church and his soldiers broke into the house. Church told Warner that if the process were executed against them, they would lose all their crops, the produce of 300 acres in the highest state of cultivation. He said they could prevent the loss by a settlement, but the Warners received the proposition with contempt and made no effort to stop the men from moving out all their furniture. Dominey Daniels, the pastor of the Lutheran Church, who occupied one side of the house, was also ejected, and his furniture and library dumped into the highway. It was a sultry July afternoon, and storm clouds began to gather swiftly. The officers volunteered to carry the furniture to any place of safety the Warners might desire, but the offer was refused with stern resolution. The thunderstorm swept over the mountain, drenching all their household goods and ruining the books. Ruin and desolation were never more calmly received, reported the evening journal. The most malevolent hatred seems to inspire them against Colonel Church. On the way to Albany that night, the eight prisoners and their guard made a stop for food. If it is to be paid for by Colonel Church, snarled one prisoner, a blacksmith, we will not eat a mouthful, we will starve first. All were freed the next day. The army moved into the Warner house, and for a week made thrusts against belligerent farmers in the neighborhood. When the holiday was over, the conquerors of the Helderbergs returned to Albany, looking gay and gallant as ever, but the populace did not hail them as heroes. The Evening Journal remarked that Colonel Church and Sheriff Fitch had spent $500 a day to intimidate the anti-renters into an acceptance of terms rather than because it was necessary to ensure the public peace. Church made one or two additional raids during the remainder of the summer. In the fall, when the bill of more than $6,000 for the purpose of subduing the late unholy anti-rent war was submitted to the Albany County Board of Supervisors, including an item of $115 for Church's personal services as colonel, the day when Church could have a militia at his call was over. After that, he had to pay his own army. 
Walter Church could manage without the militia, however. There was an anti-renter on the East Manor named Martinus Lansing, who had a large farm worth $25,000 close to the Hudson. In 1866, he owed $800 in back rent, which Church had increased to $6,000 by tacking on legal and other expenses. Lansing paid 4000 but did not settle for the rest promptly enough to suit Church. Although he subsequently offered to pay it, the payment was refused, and Lansing and his family were ejected by a posse led by Willard Griggs, a deputy sheriff. Griggs had been an anti-renter twenty years before, but was now serving principally as an agent for Church, more than ten thousand miles below contempt. The great farm, with all its buildings and other improvements put on it by Lansing's forefathers, with extensive additions and betterments by Mr. Lansing himself, wrote Andrew Colvin, anti-rent spokesman, was immediately taken possession of by the chief speculator, and he is today occupying the fine dwellings and fine barns, and planting and reaping the broad acres, and pocketing the fruits, rejoicing in the great acquisition, and making exhibitions of it to admiring friends. Martinus Lansing died of heartbreak a few years later, poor and penniless. Lansing's downfall was the final sad end of anti-rentism, observed the Troy News, who warned that the same fate awaited any farmer who resisted church. Anti-rent put itself above the law. It went into politics and was ruined, it elected governors, judges, congressmen, senators, legislators, and town and county officers, ruined the Van Rensselaers, and worried them out of their handsome estate, was petted and patronized as long as it had votes to give, and now, after long years of struggle, the law finally put its broad hand upon anti-rentism and hopelessly squelches it. But it was still not the end. There were more farmers like Martinez Lansing who would rather lose all and die than surrender their hard-earned rights. William Whitbeck, who lived near the Lansing farm east of the Hudson, was one of these. An old man, Whitbeck had been an anti-renter for nearly thirty years. He had been one of Thomas DeVere's best friends and had sided with him in the lost struggle against the political conspirators. In 1869, Church set out to acquire Whitbeck's big farm, which was valued at $15,000. After the adverse court decision, Whitbeck paid all claims, but Church found a supplementary item and presented a bill for $150, the cost of an early suit. He made no effort to collect, but explaining that Whitbeck had been contumacious and forfeited his right to the farm, he secured an ejectment order and sent Deputy Sheriff Willard Griggs to drive the farmer out. When Griggs appeared, Whitbeck offered him the $150. I can't take it, said Griggs. I have no right to take it. Whitbeck thereupon drove the deputy away. Still determined to get possession of the farm, Church rounded up a posse in Albany. He insisted the posse had been voluntary but several of the seven deputies later testified that they had been forced into service and illegally taken across the river into Rensselaer County. Church trailed about a half hour behind the posse so that he could take possession as soon as his roughs had ejected the farmer. Whitbeck met the posse at his gate with his sons John and Benjamin at his side. 
He had a pistol in his hand. Whitbeck, said Griggs, I have come to take possession. I am ready to pay, replied the farmer. Before I give up the farm, you'll have to carry my dead body from the field. One of the deputy sheriffs pulled a gun, and the shooting started. William Whitbeck fell with a wound in his head. His sons opened fire, and the deputy went down with a wound in his side. A dozen farmers rushed out of hiding in the barn and sprang into action, their guns blazing. Griggs fell with five bullet wounds, another deputy was clubbed to the ground, a third dropped, and a fourth screamed as blood gushed from a bullet hole through his hand. The rest of the posse leaped the fence and fled. When church arrived, the field was clear. The wounded men had already been helped into a wagon by the tenants and hauled away. Deputy Sheriff Griggs died soon afterward. The newspapers criticized Church's illegal use of the posse, but he had his way. With the Whitbecks in jail, charged with the murder of Willard Griggs, he took possession of the farm. He did his best to shift the moral guilt from his own shoulders, but the Whitbecks were tried in Saratoga County beyond his reach, and they were acquitted. The Whitbeck battle, bloodiest of the whole thirty-year war, was Church's last successful action. No more large posses moved against the farmers. He sent a few men to dispossess Palmer Gallup on the Helderbergs, but Indians came, hitched the posse to a wagon, and forced them to haul Gallup up and down to amuse the farmers. The last blood flowed in the early 1880s, during a brief but violent episode remembered today by old men of the Helderbergs. Deputy Sheriff Leonard Chamberlain was sent to East Burn to dispossess John Frederick for church. As Chamberlain jumped from his wagon, shotgun fire from Frederick's window caught him full in the body and killed him. According to farmers who saw the body, it looked like a pepper box. In Walter Church's most active period, between 1855 and 1870, he had doggedly pursued the farmers, clogging the courts with as many as 2,000 suits, without the loss of a major case. The bitter struggle, which was the longest and hardest in Rensselaerwick where it started, cost Albany County an estimated million dollars in lost trade, and men like Ball, Whitbeck, and Lansing were pauperized. But feudalism as a living institution was destroyed. Fewer and fewer names were called each year on rent day. Most landlords had settled immediately after the adverse decision of 1852, when the Van Rensselaers turned their estates over to hungry speculators. By 1880, the majority of the leases had passed into the hands of the farmers. In three of the principal anti-rent counties, 40 years after the first revolt, only 2,113 out of 12,344 farms remained under lease, including normal short-term leases made by individual owners. Despite his long success in the courts, Walter Church died in 1890 in virtual bankruptcy, the few reservations he still held were saddled with mortgages held by the banks and individuals who had financed his gamble to turn a dying social system into a gold mine. Today, some upstate farmers still pay in cash the equivalent of the old reservations of wheat, fowls, and day's service. Many a landholder wishing to sell or take out a loan 
has been shocked to find that the old leases which originally bound his farm were never adjusted, and that unpaid feudal tributes amount to more than the farm is worth, but these are usually adjusted for a small fee. John Burroughs paid the de Brosses heirs $25 a year in tribute on the Burroughs homestead above Roxbury until his death in 1921, after which the farm was bought by Henry Ford. As early as 1860, the glories of the manor of Rensselaerwick had departed, and the family that had once assumed to be lords and hoped to perpetuate their wealth and social position had sunk in the general mass into all obscurity. William P. Van Rensselaer had spent few comfortable hours in luxurious Beaverwick on the east bank of the Hudson. In the early 1850s he had put all pretensions to lordship behind and moved to Rye, New York, where he died in 1872. When his older brother Stephen died in the manor house in Albany in 1868, the minister who attended him in his last days observed that he had never known a Christian who felt more deeply his own unworthiness. A writer in the New York World, noting the death, spoke romantically of the end of the landed aristocracy and the miserable subterfuges of the farmers who had destroyed the manor to escape from obligations of contract. End of section 22. Recording by Maria Casper.